It is March 29, 1974, when farmer Yang Zifa's shovel hits something solid. Dizzy from the hour shoveling hard soil in the hope of finding water in the midst of a terrible drought, Yang grunts in effort as he tries to break through the hard ground once more. The soil begins to turn red. Yang tries again. Part of a hand appears. He calls over his companions, and together they unearth several clay pieces and bronze arrowheads. The farmers have no idea they've stumbled on the biggest archaeological find of the 20th century. Over 2,000 years old, the Terracotta army found in Xi'an, China, is estimated to include more than 8,000 extraordinarily crafted, life-sized warriors, each one with unique expressions and gestures. Built by 700,000 soldiers over three decades during the Qin Dynasty, the extravagant burial complex honors the first emperor to unify China under the imperial system that lasted from 221 BC until 1912. Not only is it now a UNESCO World Heritage Site, but a national treasure that embodies the resilience and power of Chinese civilization over the centuries. I'm Rosario Lebrija Rasbetalle, your host for Founding Conversation, a podcast brought to you by the PICTE Group, sharing ideas and insights for understanding and improving the modern world. If you enjoy our episodes, please make sure to rate, review, and subscribe. Until the Industrial Revolution in the 19th century, China was one of the world's wealthiest and most innovative civilizations. Pasta, porcelain, paper money, gunpowder, and the compass all were first invented in China. Now in the 21st century, China is set to once again take the mantle of the world's richest nation, and the ideas, tools, and technologies developed there will once again change the course of history. In this month's episode, we explore the challenges and opportunities presented by China's rise to the status of global superpower. Joining us are Rana Minter, professor of the history and politics of modern China at the University of Oxford, whose new book, China's Good War, explores the foundational stories of Chinese nationalism at home and its newfound confidence abroad. Dr. Ke Yujin, economist, associate professor at the London School of Economics and Political Science, and a World Economic Forum Young Global Leader. And finally, Dong Chen, Bigte Wealth Management's senior Asia economist. Our discussion today is moderated by writer, historian, and economic and geopolitical advisor, Francis Pike. I would like to start by asking Professor Mitter, can you perhaps explain to us why Xi Jinping has suddenly arrived in 2012 and has transformed the image of China and has established himself as really one of the three key leaders in the post-war period after Mao, Deng Xiaoping, and now Xi Jinping? How did he get to that position? What has been his influence? And possibly might also talk about how he sees the legitimacy of a single party rule in China. 
Francis, thanks very much indeed. There is no doubt that Xi Jinping is and is going to be one of the formative figures in global politics in the 2020s. You know, we wait to see whether Joe Biden will play that particular role. And of course, there's a whole variety of actors in Europe who are going to be rapidly changing the way they, they think about globalization. But there's no doubt that Xi Jinping is going to be a very key figure in that wider conversation. So he's someone who's absolutely worth keeping a very close eye on. In one sense, I think his rise to power over decades shows the uniqueness of the structure provided by the Chinese Communist Party. And I always think that in some ways calling the Chinese Communist Party a political party is a rather misleading way to think of it because it's somewhere between a bureaucracy and a religion, I often think. Uh, you know, when you get into it, it's something that actually in some ways is embedded throughout the whole of China and can reach everything from obviously the highest levels of policy to the most you know, intricate levels of how the street corner is, is organized. You know, the little old lady at the street corner, maybe member of the party, top members of the Politburo obviously are. So in that sense, Xi Jinping is someone who's come up through the system. You know, he's basically served in various key positions, including party secretary and some of the most prosperous provinces in China, the kind of managerial track record that's been expected in the last 40 years of the reform era to get to the top in China. But he's also very distinctive in terms of his political outlook. And I think briefly, that's probably what I should bring to mind in terms of answering your question about what makes him unusual in terms of, let's say, the last 40 years or so of Chinese politics. I think that Xi Jinping is the first Chinese leader, really, probably since uh, Deng Xiaoping, maybe even since Mao Zedong, who takes a very global view of how China is going to operate. Uh, it's not that his predecessors, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, didn't have a view of China in the world, but in some senses, their view was still about adaptation to the world. Whereas I think Xi Jinping has a view that he wants to shape it. There are some factors that come together in a different mind in the way of Xi Jinping and those around him as to what China's supposed to be. I call it the ACGT factor, which means basically authoritarianism, consumerism, globalization and technology. And I think the combination of the fact that the government that Xi Jinping operates is first of all, very, very clear about the fact it is not a liberal democracy and not seeking to become one. They don't use the word authoritarianism. It has a slightly unfortunate smack in English, but I'm an analyst, so I can, uh, can say it. They usually call it democracy with different characteristics. But in that sense, it is very much about a top-down, actually very Leninist method of control. Consumerism, because of course, the big mistake the old Soviet Union made was not to give its own population a middle-class lifestyle that they could aspire to. And whatever you say about China, there's no doubt that the middle-class lifestyle is very real and growing there as well, particularly the big cities. Globalization, because I think in terms of aspiration, there is no doubt that through the Belt and Road Initiative and through actually a great deal of the rhetoric that you see, Xi Jinping's China is looking to make an imprint on the world. It's, it's talked about very much in terms of community of destiny. It's talked about in terms of peaceful rise. But there's no doubt this is a different world vision from what we saw before. And the final factor, technology, that's the game changer. 15 years ago, nobody would have seen China as an innovator in technology. Now, in a whole variety of areas, machine learning, nanotech, uh, rollout of vaccines we see at the, the moment, there's no doubt that China has its own technological story to tell. And it mixes, of course, with all the other factors. So the fact is that the ACGT I've talked about is more than the sum of its parts. And for me, that's what lies at the heart of Xi Jinping's China, as opposed to its predecessor versions, even under the same Chinese Communist Party. You picked up a lot of points that I think we're going to be coming on to. And perhaps I could start by asking Dr. Jin, in terms of the way we see in the West, we see Xi Jinping, we see him as being a global internationalist, Rana has just said. 
But in one of your articles, I noticed that his key motivation is domestic reform. So we see him as an internationalist and possibly as an expansionist, whereas you see him as being primarily a domestic politician looking to solve China's problems. Perhaps you could expand on that. I think President Xi, what he intends to do in the remaining years that he uh, is in power is to leave a legacy. And I think the legacy has a both domestic part to it and um, an international component to it, with the domestic part being even more important, which is how to make China's system actually a lasting one. If we looked at the change going from Mao Zedong to Deng Xiaoping, that's transition and economic development. But that doesn't mean that China's unique system, at least in the eyes of the current president, is a sustainable and a long-lasting one. So I think his main legacy is to make China with social characteristics, socialism characteristics, and its model last beyond his tenure. And the second component is to reinvigorate China's strength in the world, to find its position and to have a defining uh, characteristics of its global leadership, although that is not quite you know, solidified yet. It's manifested in the Belt and Road project. But I would say that his domestic politics, including kind of you know, standing by the grassroots, even alleviating poverty, if we want to be more specific in terms of his main uh, policy objectives, uh, reducing inequality, standing by the grassroots, reviving that domestic political vigor is far and beyond his main political objective. Dr. Chen, you're covering the whole of Asia. How do Asians see the Belt and Road Initiative? They see it's a very positive thing. Are they worried about it? How does it go down? I think the big part of business communities across Asia, especially in, like in Southeast Asia and uh, including also Central Asia, uh, the business communities generally welcome that because uh, that means investment, that means funding, that means business opportunities. So I, I think from a Chinese perspective, I mean, from Chinese government perspective, that's mainly a kind of geopolitical kind of move so that you know, China tries to make more friends in the neighborhood and China has this capability in infrastructure construction as well as the capital necessary to provide that. Uh, but of course, I think recently, you know, you are seeing more kind of backlash in Chinese push in this Belt and Road projects, especially, you know, in some countries now you have the concerns of rising debts and so on. And uh, so, you know, from what I see, I think the, the, the reaction has been mixed, um, mostly economically. We're seeing a lot of, at least in the early stage, a lot of welcoming kind of attitude. But now we're seeing more uh, reflection on some of those projects, the specific projects. And uh, so actually we, we expect, especially in the context of the current government's shift towards a so-called dual circulation strategy with a higher emphasis on the domestic economy, uh, there could be some uh, scaling back uh, in part of those um, uh, Belt and Road ambitions. Perhaps I could ask Dr. Jin in, in reference to this. Do you think the West has any need to be concerned about the increasing, let's say, expansive geopolitical presence of China in the world? 
is that a good thing or is is the bad thing? There, obviously, there are some people in, particularly in, in America, who are quite frightened, particularly on the, on the right. Do you think that there are real concerns, or or do you think actually the world benefits from China being more expansive? There's a difference between territorial expansion, which China has has shown no ambitions of. And、uh, what you may refer to as geopolitical interest and strategy to expand its influence economically, which I think is part of the Belt and Road project, but it's not solely about geopolitical strategy. China has a very successful development model, at least in, up until now, and infrastructure has been a key component of its success. It has a lot of experience in building infrastructure. It has massive amount of saving compared to any other country, which it can export to the rest of the world. And we have probably a trillion dollars of or and more of infrastructure financing deficit in the world, where China would like to at least partly fill in that gap, with in in addition to bring in expertise. And、uh, technical expertise and building a platform for many countries to participate in helping developing countries build infrastructure. And we know that infrastructure is very important—not just physical infrastructure, but also social infrastructure, and now increasingly digital infrastructure, which is all part of the Belt and Road project. So I think, in the economic sense, in the sense of economics, it is—it、uh, has high potential and high rewards to be shared. Around the world, however, I think the problem, putting aside potential alarms of geopolitical kind of alert for the Western countries, is really about transparency and about implementation and about being、uh, sensitive to the financial, delicate financial positions of these developing countries, all of which the chi- China needs to contemplate and work on. So I want to say that there, you know, there, there, are, it is a momentous project, and from an economics point of view, a highly beneficial one. But it really depends on how it's done. Geopolitical influence. I'd rather that China takes up that approach than to take up, you know,、uh, military expansion or territorial expansion. And I think it's a healthier way, and potentially it's about shared gains, shared economic gains, rather than more of a threat、uh, for the world. Mao Zedong once said, "The little ball moves the big ball." During the 1971 World Table Tennis Championships, Chairman Mao shocked the world by inviting the U.S. team to visit China. These 15 ping pong players, team officials, and accompanying family members briefly became the most important American diplomats in the world, because, as historian John King Fairbank once said, from 1950 to 1971. Washington sent more men to the moon than to China. That same year, President Nixon eased travel and trade restrictions with China. The year after, Chairman Mao sent the Chinese ping pong team to the U.S. and received President Nixon himself in China. Ping pong diplomacy, as it is now known, marked the beginning of relations between the two nations after decades of mutual isolation. We've covered quite a lot on the international aspects of of China. It would be good to look at China itself as an economy and the opportunities there. But first of all, and perhaps I could ask Dr. Chen, do you think that the 
government under Xi Jinping has been successful in correcting some of the problems of the domestic economy, particularly, I would say, in terms of the rationalization of the state-owned enterprises, which consume so much of the credit available in China. Okay, I think uh, the state-owned enterprise is a very interesting phenomenon in China. It is not much of a just a pure economic issue, you know, because if from a pure economic perspective, all the evidence pretty much points to the fact that SOEs are less efficient than private enterprises. And uh, even with all this reform that Chinese government has been doing, they are still less efficient. But that is still a very important part of the economy that I definitely believe that the Communist Party will continue to stick to because this, the, the reason is very simple. It's a political requirement because the ruling party needs an economic base and the, the state of enterprises just serve as a base. So to that end, I think that a lot of reforms, you know, since the early 1980s to now, I think, uh, definitely has transformed the universe of state-owned enterprises significantly. You know, first they 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 reduce greatly in number, so you have only a a few dozens of centrally controlled uh, SOEs. You know, um, as of lately, and uh, also they exited a lot of you know competitive areas where they do not really matter that strategically to the economy. But uh, I'd say that if you look at the overall level of efficient level, that's still, as I said earlier, they definitely cannot be compared with the most successful private companies. But uh, I do think that uh, probably we'll still need to learn. I mean, the, the, the SOEs and the markets, they will need to learn to coexist in Chinese setting. That's a very special phenomenon I think will continue. Yeah. Dr. Chin. When I was in Shanghai 10 years ago, I gave a speech at Shanghai University saying that China had picked the low-hanging fruit of economic growth in terms of export-driven growth. How successful do you think that is China being at, at transferring that to domestic-led growth? If we look at the data, a lot of the trade has now been shifted back to being produced domestically. So two thirds of Chinese imports used to be in intermediate goods, which is just inputs they put together and then they ship out as exports. But that has dramatically reduced, and the domestic content of its export has risen from say fifty percent to almost seventy percent in the last ten、uh, years or more. So what that means is that. It's making a lot of these inputs domestically now. It's importing less and less from abroad for its export purposes. Another pattern that has happened is that a lot of its、uh, exports are now shifting from lower-end, labor-intensive goods in apparel and footwear and furniture into medium and high-tech exports, which is causing a direct competition no longer with. Lower skilled、uh, laborers in in Europe and in the U.S., but more、uh, directly competing with German manufacturers and Japanese and Taiwanese manufacturers. So that is one major change. So I would say that rather than putting it as relying less on exports, I think China's growth is going to derive from being on the higher or at least the mid to high end of the value chain. In terms of its exports, so increasing its value added this way. I mean, if we look at the Apple iPhone, it's a very you know it's extraordinary 
uh, improvement in the sense that it used to be $4 out of $100 that uh, is accrued to China. But now that has risen to, I think, almost uh, $25 out of $100 because a lot of the core components, including the audio equipment and battery, are now produced in China. So uh, rising value added in its uh, export is another source of growth. Now, uh, that said, if you look at the macro numbers, it is deriving less and less of growth from its exports and more uh, from its uh, domestic investment and consumption. That has been the intention to shift away from export-led growth for a number of years already. And the increasing trade tensions around the world started by President Trump's administration and the trade wars, as well as the onset of the global pandemic has uh, fully uh, demonstrated the need to be much more independent, especially in its kind of core uh, components, but also having more independence of supply chain and supply chain resilience. That's not to say that China's turning protectionism, quite the contrary. It's just more about both globalization and more greater independence, if that could be achieved simultaneously. Would you both agree that um, China will avoid the stagnation that Japan suffered in the 90s after its export-led growth? Japan's mistake, again, coming back to the data, is mostly explained by the very, very low productivity growth during the big slump. And that ultimately comes from a variety of reasons, including potentially uh, macroeconomic mismanagement of policy and uh, the lack of reforms in the financial sector. All of that contribute, but mostly it is reflected in very, very low productivity growth for more than a decade. I have high hopes that China will avoid uh, that same scenario because while we've mentioned about its financial system reforms and financial opening up, one of the widest and deepest reforms since the opening up uh, of the 1970s now is happening in the financial sector. Chinese innovation and technology is extremely promising. Of course, it has to show up in terms of the numbers and productivity, but that's really a challenge around the world. But still, the innovation system is a serious uh, national commitment. And finally, you know, Japan stagnated at a very high, almost, you know, 80%, 90% of the U.S.'s income level. China is far, far, far from that level at present. I think China's next step is simply going from a $10,000 income per capita country to a $30,000 income country. And that's still, you know, halfway uh, from reaching the U.S. So I have, I, I think it will avoid the Japanese mistakes, at least uh, for the near future. I agree, because I think a very important factor behind the uh, Japanese stagnation is also the policy mistakes following the burst of their asset bubble uh, in early 1990s. And uh, I think the Chinese government has been very vigilant against uh, the issue of potential asset bubble. And uh, you, you look at their attitude towards the property market, for example, I think they definitely learn the lessons, both from Japan's experience as well as the great financial crisis. I think the better, you know, I think from a policy perspective, a better performance of the Chinese government probably will lend more confidence that uh, China possibly can avoid the kind of stagnation we saw for Japan before. Rana, what's your perception of the Chinese government's ability to manage change? I think actually so far what we've seen is that there is a great deal of capacity to manage change. 
I would say there are a couple of factors that are well known about, and in fact, they're being addressed, I think, in the five-year plan that's being put through the Congress right now as as we speak, but I think nonetheless are pretty inexorable changes. One is demographics, Uh, you know, from the year, I think 2029, there's going to be 5 million fewer Chinese year by year. So, you know, at the moment, China's population is still bigger than India's, but in 25, 30 years, it will be significantly smaller um, and it will be significantly older on average, but it will also, of course, be significantly richer. So getting from here to there is part of the, uh, the challenge. Another one is drought, you know, water supply is actually one of those issues that really, really over a long period of time needs to be addressed with urgency. There's some good signs that environmental issues are certainly being taken on board by the government, but at the same time, long-term solutions, including working out how, you know, Beijing and the new cities built around it, which are basically on the edge of the Gobi Desert, are going to be kept hydrated is a really tough question to which there isn't, I think, yet a really clear answer. And the the final point that I'd make in the long-term set of factors is education. I bow to no one in my admiration for China's willingness to put money into research and education. I think 2.3%, perhaps even more, of national GDP is put in to research and education, a lesson that we could learn, I think, in, in the Western countries. But at the same time, there are still huge numbers of people back out in the countryside, the children of those parents who have gone off to the cities, the migrant workers to build the amazing skyscrapers in in the new cities, but they're there being looked after by their grandparents. The educational levels that they have are still not up to the kind of standards that you would get in Shanghai or or Beijing or, or whatever. Education inequality is one of the factors that I think could really hold China back over a longer term, unless it's addressed at some speed now. I know it is being addressed, but the question is, will it be addressed fast enough and comprehensively enough? So lots being done, but lots of challenges. Today, China's a world leader in computer science and artificial intelligence. But in the 1970s, it lagged behind the rest of the world in the adoption of digital technology. It was thought then that the challenge of creating a Chinese language computer was effectively impossible. Apart from the limited memory of computers then, no one had found a way of using a keyboard to efficiently select from among the thousands of characters in everyday use. It was assumed that the digital age would be the death knell of character-based writing. But an engineer named Wang Yongming devised a new system, breaking down the component parts of each character and fitting them to the Latin keyboard. He called it the Wubi method. And it made him as famous in China as Bill Gates and Steve Jobs are in the West. Credited with saving the central 3,000-year-old element of Chinese culture. I think that's a good point to switch to another subject, which you've all mentioned, is technology and the importance of technology going forward. And obviously education, which is an important part of that. Which areas of technology do you think that China will focus on and which areas do you think they have the best advantages in? There are two different kinds of technologies. One is what I call from zero to N or uh, one to N, which is kind of duplicative or innovation based around business models and kind of derivative of original model developed elsewhere, but making a much better, uh, much bigger 
and uh, perfecting it. And China has done extraordinarily well uh, with these kind of innovations, with the example of uh, WeChat function or Alipay and financial fin- financial technology, uh, of course, TikTok, ByteDance, these kind of, um, of uh, innovations, if I may call it that, are some of the best in the world. And then there's another kind of technology which goes from zero to one, which is more fundamental technology, and that is uh, in areas of high tech. And uh, I think this is where China is still weaker in the sense of being completely innovative and you know, really having this capacity to develop in high tech areas. And this is where the government wants to focus on because these are areas of critical importance. This is where if China is cut off from uh, these critical high tech components, China's uh, trade and technology could suffer from very detrimental consequences. And so there's a lot of room for improvement in these areas. And I think China's education system, Chinese institutions is still a barrier for China to develop these high-tech products, you know, in the very short term, because a lot of it is about learning, it's accumulation, it's about creativity, it's about institutions that foster innovation. It's not just about the money, amount of money spent, although I have to agree with Rana, 2.3% of GDP spent on R&D and lots and lots more going on now. Actually, I think the Chinese government is ready to pour in lots more of funds, especially in uh, semiconductors and what we call emerging strategic areas, including AI and cloud technology, etc. I think if you throw enough money at the problem in this particular area, it gets solved eventually. So if we don't want to tally the cost, I think China will make it. And China can achieve that. Thank you. Dr. Chen, I'm sure you can add a lot to that, but I'd like to particularly focus you on, on artificial intelligence, which I know is a subject that's very interested in. And do you see, as some commentators think, that China will lead the way in artificial intelligence? For AI, two things are very important. One, algorithm, and second, data. And uh, in terms of data, in China, you have huge amount of data, simply because of the large size of the, the market, as well as people care less about privacy and so on to give up their data. But also to actually to clean up the data for AI training, you need a lot of labor, a lot of effort in doing that. And actually, China has a pretty big advantage in doing that. So that gave actually uh, give China some advantage in this area. But... On the other hand, in terms of algorithm, I I think that China in this area actually is still not the leader at this point because it involves a lot more fundamental research in mathematics and so on to achieve that. So that's where China has to work harder on. Uh, So this the answer, I think, is mixed. But China definitely is on a very good path to become at least one of the leaders in this area. We're coming towards the end of our podcast, but there's one question I'd like to ask all of you, and that is, particularly given the Pictet's interest in the environment, ecology, climate change, and so on, how successful is China being, and how successful does it want to be in terms of cleaning up its act in terms of carbon emissions, which at the moment is about, I think, China's at 25% of, of world emissions compared to 16% in America. So... It's probably the country with the major factor in terms of whether we succeed in reducing carbon emissions. I would say that 
there are some very good and entirely unaltruistic reasons for China to be immensely concerned about these issues, not just in terms of environmental pollution, but also actually in terms of climate change. And there's often, I think, too much conflation of these two issues when they're talked about in China, as if you know, destruction of rivers and the you know, chemical pollution of soil, which are huge issues, are the same thing as climate change. And of course, while there are clear relations, they are not, in fact, the same. The fact is that if China is going to do all the things that you know have been discussed during this, this podcast, including raising education levels and income levels and taking a global role, it can't possibly think of doing that unless, first of all, it has environmental stability at home. And second, unless it plays a global role in terms of a problem which does not recognize boundaries, which is global climate change, climate emergency, we might, uh, we might say. So, you know, the last few days we've heard some good signs and some worrying signs. You know, the good signs are that China's government has you know, pointed out again that it's going to be investing in green technology in terms of, of energy production. That's very welcome. But it is worrying that no statement was made recently about coal, which is one of the real Achilles heels, one of the real problems in terms of not only China's domestic energy production. And of course, there are very strong vested interests. We talked earlier, I think, with Dong Chen about some of the SOEs, the state-owned enterprises, and of course, coal production is very much in that particular basket, but also the export of coal-fired power to some of the key players on the Belt and Road Initiative, and I'm thinking here of Pakistan as a good example of that. People sometimes talk, you see it sometimes in China's plans as well as Americans, about clean coal. There is no such thing as clean coal. It does not exist. And therefore, for that reason, I think while China in some ways is not behaving worse than some of the other major polluters, um, India, United States under President Trump. It's really important if China wants to take a lead as opposed to talking about a lead, but actually sitting a little bit at the back of the class to actually show that it's going to make gestures that unfortunately probably will in the short term cause a certain amount of economic pain. And that's a domestic political problem that will, will have to be dealt with. But the fact is that climate change isn't gonna hang around waiting for us to solve our political problems. It needs to be dealt with right now. I think that the environmental protection, climate change uh, are not just political and economic priorities. They are a responsibility of the government and the government recognizes that. It is tied very much to an evolving objective of the national kind of commitment to its citizen, which is improving the quality of lives of its people rather than just seeking high growth and maximizing economic growth. And we see that all around us. I mean, as a citizen, Chinese citizen and somebody who lives in Beijing, I've seen personally massive amounts, dramatic improvements uh, in the quality of air. But also, if we measure how many number of urban parks that are being built around the country, it is actually staggering. I'm even a bit worried that uh, it's become a great wasteful resources just because of the the general commitment to improving the quality of lives of the citizens. But this is also part, you know, a deeper philosophical or political issue is uh, the legitimacy of the Communist Party. Wherein does its legitimacy lie? It's certainly not by going to the ballot box that uh, the Communist Party has its legitimacy. It lies partly and importantly in preserving the welfare, improving the welfare of the uh, middle income group and the and even the, the poor populations. And this is not just about rate raising income, but importantly about environmental protection. And the Kuznet, there's something in economics called the Kuznets curve. And uh, that, that traces out kind of people's demand on uh, environmental quality as uh, for a fast growing uh, country, 
the demands are low because there's significant trade-offs. You want to trade off more growth, even at the cost of environment. But once you reach a certain per capita income level, the demands on environment uh, surpasses the demands on income. And that is actually coming from the people. So I think uh, we are at the inflection point of the Kuznets per curve uh, for China. And this is why this is a real commitment uh, at all levels uh, in the country. Just adding on top of the points made by the other two speakers, I think uh, Chinese government is serious about this uh, climate change commitment, right? So uh, President Xi last year made this uh, commitment of carbon neutrality for China in year 2060. I think that's a very important promise because actually following that promise, you have already seen various government agencies have already issued uh, different roadmaps trying to uh, figure out how to reach that point. I think from a, not just from an economic and from an environmental perspective, from a political perspective, I think this makes a lot of sense because addressing an issue like climate change is one of the very rare areas in which China, Europe, and the U.S. actually have some common interests. And China has been singled out as the kind of like the enemy of the world, uh, especially during the Trump administration. And this is a very good opportunity for the Chinese government actually take up the leadership and show that it is a responsible part of a member of the world. And it's serious about that. You know, people, you, you may be wondering, well, other countries promise to become carbon neutral in year 2050, why China is 2060? But you think about that, China is still growing. China expects to reach the peak of carbon emission in 2030. That means from carbon peak to carbon neutrality, you only have 30 years in between. Well, for most developed countries, that time span is somewhere between 40 to 50 years. Actually, China is going to take a much steeper path towards uh, carbon neutral than many developed countries, simply because China industrialized much later than they they, they do. So we do believe this actually is a very important and serious commitment and actually come with that. uh, There will be a lot of commercial opportunities as well. Uh, Thank you for that. Thank you all very much for joining me in this podcast. Thank you very much. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be with everyone. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. This week's guests on Founding Conversation were Rana Mitter, Dr. Keiyu Jin, and Dong Chen. This episode was moderated by Francis Pike. This series is brought to you by the Bikta Group, one of Europe's leading independent wealth and asset managers, in collaboration with the How To Academy, London's premier public forum for sharing global thought leadership. Executive producers are me, Rosario Lebrija-Rasbetayev, and Vasily Christodoulou, with Stephen Barber as our editorial advisor. If you enjoyed this episode, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening.